Information creates uh, emotion, and a lack of information um, sometimes goes with a lack of information, a lack of emotion. And too much information can lead to depression, especially if you're one of those folks who uh, is keeping tabs on things that are happening all over the world. You you know what's going on, and, and sometimes that can be discouraging. To keep you informed this morning, though, I want to let you know that you can follow along at intoone.ca. We have a page called Latest Message Notes, and you can follow along there. You can make notes on there and then email them to yourself. You can use the handout or the screens as well. On a Friday evening in November of 2015, I was driving my, uh, my boys to Merlin's hockey game. And as we were listening to the radio, or like most of us, we were kind of half listening to the radio as we went, um, and an announcer broke in. In the, uh, in, in the middle of a song, which is so rare. And the announcer declared that there was an emergency report that there had been, and they were still trying to figure everything out. It wasn't, it wasn't um, done yet, but there had been a terror attack in Paris. Do you remember this? Killed 130 people. And, and, and there were so many uh, uh, people who were, who were now riveted to their screens because uh, not, not because there was a terrorist attack, because those seem to happen every single day. And, and honestly, we become so immune to, uh, to news about death and mayhem and destruction as it relates to terror that we, we kind of just block it out. We, we, we pre-filter, you know, uh, four gunmen. And then there was uh, armed, armed gunmen opened fire, and there was four people killed, and there was uh, a pipe bomb discovered, or there was a car bomb goes off somewhere, and we, we hear it, and we, we mentally just kind of turn the whole thing down. All the volume goes out of it. But when the Paris incident occurred, it struck a nerve. And it struck a nerve not because it was a terrorist attack and not because 130 people were, were killed, although that was absolutely horrible. What made it so riveting to all of us was that um, all of that terror stuff that used to be over there, well, suddenly it felt more like it was over here. And, and Paris felt more like it was over here than it was over there. And unfortunately, the way our empathy, the way our sympathy works, it's not equivalent, it's not equal all around the world. We don't view all situations as the same. We don't view all people as the same, but Europe feels more like North America than the Middle East does. And, and then it felt like after that, there was this accelerated chain of terror events or bursting into the news, and we heard like San Bernardino, and then there was Las Vegas, and there was uh, school shootings, and the, the Miami club thing, and then there was that Nova Scotia shooter, and then there was Canadian parliament buildings, our parliament buildings and drivers were swerving onto sidewalks full of crowded people and they did that even in Toronto. And then it felt like these terror scenarios or, or, or just horrible scenarios just kept coming and, and they, they bring with it a new level of anxiety. There's a new level of fear. We want to say, hey, what's going on here? Who's not doing their job? Where's their security? What's going to happen? Could it happen to us? It's no longer if, but when. Well, how do we protect ourselves? What can we do to protect our families? But to complicate the situation even more, there was a religious thread that ran through so many of those, um, those stories. And for the past several years, we have experienced, we have watched, we have seen, and maybe have even forgotten the thousands of men and women and children who were being murdered and executed and tortured by people who shared the same religion. 
And for some people, the, 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 those people who are perpetrating these terrible things against the majority of the people of their religion, they felt like they just aren't doing it right. You, you're just too moderate. You, you've become too liberal. Um, you need to be more conservative. Things need to be taken more seriously, and you're not doing that. This is how we're going to get to your attention. And it's fascinating to see the people that are uh, sharing the same faith can treat each other so poorly. And it was fascinating, horrifying. And then, but in addition to that, what, what happens to Christians around the world is equally horrible. Persecution, persecution of Christians in the modern world has been climbing in the last 10 years. The numbers of people that are being killed because they are Christian is truly significant. In 2015, more than 2,400 churches were destroyed simply because they were Christian churches. And David Curry, the president of uh, an organization called Open Doors, which sort of monitors Christian persecution throughout the world, uh, they, they track it, they, they try to provide this information so that things can be done, or at least people know. He said this, the level of exclusion, discrimination, and violence against Christians in some countries has risen to a level akin to ethnic cleansing. We don't feel that here in Stouffville, but that's part of our global reality. That's part of our global family. We don't feel that directly, but we are starting to get an increased sensation of that, kind of on the periphery edges because of what is happening around the world and, and sometimes because of what seems to be happening in our own country. So regardless of whether or not you are a Christian, you are being forced and you will continue to be forced to decide how you are going to deal with this anxiety, with this fear that is being sold to us and pushed to us all the time. How do you deal with your fear? How secure is secure enough? How many bullets is bullets enough? How much hiding can you really do? How much can you continue to withdraw from the world? You as an individual, you have to decide what you're going to do about that, how you are going to live in this world. But as Christians, there's something uh, very specific that we need to keep in mind. And if you're not a Christian, it's okay. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I'm so glad that you're listening when you listen in. I'm so glad that you're here because there is something here for you too. Because we believe that in the Gospels, Jesus specifically addresses this in a very helpful way. And whether you are a Jesus follower or not, what he says could really apply to you if you choose to apply it. But either way, you're going to have to decide what and how you are going to respond to the anxiety that is being transferred to you, the fear in our world that you are constantly being told you should be afraid of something. In addition to what's happening somewhere else in the world, it's what's also happening in this country. What will you do with what's happening here? And there are many Christians who start to feel like, you know, there's been legislation, there's, there's stuff in the public school system, there's stuff in uh, academia, there's stuff in our culture in general that has begun to push away, to pull away from that, uh, the center as it relates to Christianity. That Christianity, even in this country, uh, this, this beautiful country from sea to shining sea, that Christianity is under assault. That it's not the same as it would be in other parts of the world, but Christianity does not seem to hold the same sign of uh, cultural respect or the same cultural sway 
as it once has. And the question is, when you were looking around at terrorism in the world and the, uh, how that might be beginning to encroach on the borders of our nation, when you look at the erosion of what Christianity means within our nation, there's, there's a question that comes up and um, you, you'll have to answer it eventually, either now or, or later. You, you can't really get by. And the answer is like, how should we respond? How should a Christian respond to this rising anxiety? How should Christians respond to an environment or a context where there is actually something to be afraid of? Where there are real things to worry about? So that's what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. Uh, That's how we're going to focus ourselves for this application in a new way of the Easter season. So to start... I want, uh, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning, um, not the beginning of the Bible, not the beginning of time. We just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but all the way back to the beginning of Christianity, to that event that it seems that everybody is aware of, that uh, everybody kind of knows about, and maybe they saw a movie about it, or they've seen pictures of it, they've seen a sculpture, they've heard somebody talk about it. Um, that event that, that really kicks off Christianity. Because in this event, it is both glorious and horrible. And in it, there's something that we celebrate. It's something that is just absolutely terrible at the time that it happened. And yet in this event, we see the standard that has been set for all of us who choose to follow Jesus. And we forget this. We forget this because... It just doesn't come up in here in Canada all that much. In Canada, there's just so much religious freedom um, that you believe what you want, right? We've never really been pressured to withdraw from our Christian faith. We might not like how everything goes, but no one is threatening us about it. But at the very center of this key starting point is a horrible slash wonderful event that really set the standard and the tone for Christianity. And fortunately, if you want to call it fortunately for us, we have not had to lean in to this element of our faith very much because we are so blessed to live in the nation that we now live in. But the day may come when we will all need to be more ready, and perhaps that day is beginning. So I'd like to help you get prepared in mind and in spirit to use this um, to, to count down as a riskier way to anticipate Easter. In the beginning, in the beginning, the founder of our faith, Jesus, in the beginning, the central core of our faith, the one that we sing about, the one that is the subject of so many pieces of art, the one who we tell our kids about, in the beginning, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, and he was unjustly arrested, he was illegally tried and convicted. The witnesses were bribed. He was flogged. We could say tortured, but in our culture, uh, torture seems to be tied to extracting information. This was torture for the sake of punishment only. Jesus was flogged and tortured, not to get information, but to keep a small group of people happy. Peter's good friend, Mark, famous for his gospel named Mark, he said this, wanting to satisfy the crowd. 
Why did this happen? Because someone wanted to satisfy a crowd. Was this the right thing, the right and proper use of the law? Was this wise, determined justice sought to provide righteous government for the people? No. This flogging, and then worse, came about to placate a bunch of angry people. And what made them angry? Doesn't even matter. Just get them to quiet down. Just quiet that noise. Go ahead and horribly abuse an innocent man to satisfy the crowd. Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea. Pilate oversaw the trial of Jesus, and he did that ultimately because the Jewish people did not have the authority to sentence him to death. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged. These are festival days. And during these festival days, the governor of Judea, Pilate, wanted to make people happy. So he would release to them a properly convicted criminal, maybe a murderer, as in this case. And he gave the people this year Barabbas. Set him free. But let's keep the festive spirit alive. Let's also order Jesus to be flogged. And maybe you know the words scourge or flog. Uh, Maybe you've heard these words, but frankly, they don't tend to mean that much to us. They speak They refer to, they point at another era, a different time when things were not like they are now. And this small, tiny little word is just thrown in there to satisfy the crowd. It's quite intense. There was quite a skill when it came to flogging a man. Two Roman centurions would each get a wooden handle about a foot long attached to leather straps. And the leather straps were about six to eight feet long. And tied into this leather strap, there would be bits of glass and metal and stone, and the goal of the flogging was to slowly rip the skin off a person's back and chest and stomach, one lash at a time, and the hands were tied together, and then they were lashed to the top of a pole so that the whole entire body was exposed, and this is what Pilate had done to Jesus in order to satisfy a crowd, and after he was flogged, he was taken back to taking back to headquarters where Pilate's men decided to have a little bit of fun with Jesus, to have some fun with the king of the Jews, the man who stands at the center of Christianity, the man who was honored, and in his name, people all around the world gather. And the writer of Matthew, who was an eyewitness to, you know, kind of everything that was involved in Jesus's ministry, he said this, they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns, that now famous symbol which is somewhat picturesque and even romanticized. And they they set it on his head, and they put a staff in his right hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spat on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And then as if that wasn't enough, Pilate went on to give Jesus the maximum sentence. There was no mercy. And to keep our history accurate, it's important to know that the Romans did not create, they did not invent crucifixion, but they did work at it harder than anyone else. They perfected it. And crucifixion was not designed to kill a man. Crucifixion was designed to keep a man alive as long 
as possible, to prolong the agony as long as possible. The idea was that there was such shame, such shame that was so public that anyone who saw crucifixion or saw the aftermath of a crucifixion would never, they had such a fear in their heart that they would never, not under any circumstance, cross the Roman Empire. So crucifixion was so humiliating that the Romans who specialized in the art of torture assured their own citizens that a Roman could never be crucified. It was also excruciating. In fact, the very word excruciating comes from two Latin words, ex cruciatus, or out of the cross. A spike, a nail between the bones of the wrist, something that could hold the weight of the body, a nail at the foot to enable the victim to be able to push up on something in order to breathe. Because people didn't bleed to death. They suffocated because they just couldn't get a lung full of air. And so these unfortunates are stretched out, but not high up. Not raised up two or three feet or more, as more popular in the movies. The primary idea of crucifixion was shame. So these men were oftentimes just inches off the ground, maybe a foot off the ground, and that low so that they could look. And so the perpetrators of this horrible punishment and everyone gathered would be able to look at them right in the eye and mock them all the way to the point of death. And so the eyewitnesses again recount what happened to Jesus once he was crucified. Those who passed by him hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And by the way, lest we forget, Jesus was not captured trying to flee to Egypt to evade arrest. Jesus was not captured as he made his way through the desert of Engedi, trying to hide out in the caves that David hid from Saul. Jesus wasn't captured at a port city trying to make his way across the Mediterranean Sea out onto some island or to disappear into the Jewish population in Ephesus or into the uh, region of Galatia. Your Savior, my Savior, the Jesus of history walked right into Jerusalem under his own power, on purpose, knowing that this would be his fate. He rode in on Main Street in broad daylight. Your Savior was extraordinarily bold. Your Savior, my Savior, walked into the temple, crowded with people, and he began to overturn the tables because they'd set up a market in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles were allowed to come and pray. 
And he ran them all out by himself. And when the temple leaders confronted him, they did not say, what do you think you're doing? They looked into his eyes and they heard his voice and they asked this question, who do you think you are? Because there was something about that, the countenance of Jesus. There was something about the, the presence that he brought of Jesus. There was something about his gaze and there was something about his stare that just oozed and overflowed with authority. And finally they said, by whose authority are you doing these things? Your Savior was bold. Your Savior was fearless. He was braver than hell. He was stronger than steel. And yes, by the end, he also proved that he was tougher than nails. And then he says to you, and he says to me, he says to us, follow me. He said it this way, whoever, whoever throughout all the generations, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That is, from time to time, you need to say no to you so that you can say yes to Jesus. From time to time, there will be a conflict between my will for me and Jesus' will for me. So as I get into the habit of following Jesus, I get into the habit of saying no to me to say yes to Jesus. They must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. He doesn't mean jewelry here. In the first century, the cross wasn't a cool piece of stylish jewelry that you could wear. It wasn't a decoration on the outside or the top of a church. The cross represented death, execution, humiliation, public notoriety, the worst kind of death. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, there will come a day, there will come a season, there will come a set of circumstances where you are going to need to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow me daily. You will have to follow me when it feels safe. And you will have to follow me when it does not feel safe. You will have to deny yourself and follow me when you get something out of it when, it, when it feels practical, when it feels inspirational, when it's helpful. But you're also going to have to follow Jesus sometimes when it's not practical when you can't see how this could ever be helpful. To follow me even um, when it looks like it's going to hurt you. To follow me when it, when it benefits you and to follow me when sometimes it's going to cost you. And Jesus knows us. He knows our heart. He knows the way that we think. He knows the heart of humanity. And over and over in the Gospels it comes up, his understanding of the way we think and the problems that we have. And Jesus knows what we're like. So Jesus understood our need for security. He understood our propensity for safety and in the heart of a person to protect themselves and to protect their families. Being risk averse, that's natural. So when he gathered his followers, you know, many times, they get together, they, they talk, they hang out, he teaches. But before he was arrested and before he was ultimately crucified, he said to his disciples over and over again, he said stuff like this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of someone who the worst they can do to you 
is kill the body. But they cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear is going to come. Fear is an emotion. When it happens, there's a place to be afraid. There's something to fear. But never allow your fear of a someone or a group of someones who the worst thing that they can do is destroy your body. Never allow that fear to rule your life. So, of course, super easy to say that, right? Good safe distance, not under any fire here. Uh, very easy to say, very easy to write. Write that down. And so Matthew's taking notes. He goes, yep, Jesus, I got that one. Keep it coming. I wrote it down. But Jesus knows that it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to uh, read it. It's another, one thing to write it. But it's entirely different to experience it. And so we've talked about this recently. So I'm just going to bring it back up for you again. But Jesus took his disciples on a boat ride. And maybe it was a three-hour tour. Probably not. And these were guys that were from the region of the Sea of Galilee, up in the north. They were fishermen. They owned boats. Their families owned boats. And they grew up near the water. They grew up on the sea. It was their life. And so they get into a boat, and they begin to cross a portion of the Sea of Galilee. They get out there. Maybe you remember this story. And Jesus heads straight to the back of the boat, and he zonks out. He's exhausted, and so he goes to the back, and he just goes to sleep. And you're out on the sea, you can see it coming. So they go, well, there, there's a storm. A storm is coming. A storm is rolling in, and boy, she looks like a big one this time. And these guys are getting all sailored up, right? They're getting on their foul weather gear. They're battening down the hatches. They're swabbing the deck. They've been in storms before. They know what to do with a storm. But this storm feels like it's getting a little bit extra, you know, a little bit heavy. And the boat is getting tossed around and swamped. It looks like it might sink. And the waves are pretty intense and the, the wind, it just won't stop. And they're starting to think that this might be one of the worst storms they've seen. There's the wind and there's the waves and there's the sinking. There's the maybe this is going to lead to the drowning. Maybe this is the end. And they still say, hey, Jesus, wakey, wakey. Don't you care we're going to die? These guys are scared. They're terrified. They're afraid. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why? Why afraid? Because we're in the early stages of drowning. We are not seeing a way out. The waves are big in front of us. The waves are crashing around us. They're coming from every side. We don't see a way to get out of this. We see no hope from our vantage point. How can things change? We are going to die. We are dying. We just haven't finished the dying process yet. But Jesus said, don't fear anything that can only take your body. We've gone over this. Why are you still afraid? If you can trust me when things are going well, why can you not trust me when things start to go sideways? And then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves. And it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Even the winds and the waves respond to his authority. When Peter's good friend Mark, when he tells this story, he takes the verbal form and the noun form 
together and he smushes them into one sentence. And they, talking about the guys in the boat, and they feared a great fear. Their latter faith was greater than their former fear. They now feared the storm less and the Jesus more. Jesus was saying to them, and now letting us in on the inside as well, if you're going to be afraid, fear God. When fear starts to overwhelm you, you need to remind yourself, you might need to get up and preach to yourself, I do not submit myself to the fear of anything that can only touch my body. My ultimate allegiance, my ultimate fear, my ultimate trust is in God. Fear is having a trust. When they feared the waves, they feared the power of the waves. When you fear God, you are trusting in the power of God. And and God's power is greater than the power of anything else in existence. If you're going to be afraid, fear God. In the meantime, follow me. Now, for some of us, this is uh, extremely relevant today. We're in the midst of it. For others, this is just not the same. We don't have that same level of experience. We're just not in that place. We don't sense that same level of need right now. And you can also take the time to be thankful for that. But here's an unavoidable reality. Uncertainty is unavoidable. Uncertainty is for certain. The only thing for certain in this life is uncertainty. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but here is the message of Jesus for anyone who desires to follow him. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but fearful, fearful is optional. Fear isn't optional. Fear comes and fear goes. Certainly there are seasons when we we have way more fear than we would like. We don't have control when fear crops up. But living a fearful life, living under a canopy of fear, submitting to fear, fearful, is always optional. And Jesus proved this in his life. Jesus proved this in his death. Jesus proved it in the living of his life under the the gaze, the watch of all these eyewitnesses. It's the reason that we can be here today talking about it. Jesus was persecuted. The Apostle Paul was persecuted. The Apostle Paul, who brought you about half of what we call the New Testament, he was persecuted much of the time that he was writing the letters that you can read now that have been collected together, these historical manuscripts put together in the thing called the New Testament. He was stoned and left for dead. So a group of people uh, dragged him outside of the city for practicing Judaism the wrong way. And they thought that he was undermining the authority of Judaism. And the pagans thought that he was undermining the authority of paganism by discrediting the idols that they worshipped and the idols that they sold. So the two of them, they were bothered by his teachings, and so they dragged him out of the city. And then they began to throw rocks of whatever size they could find, whatever size they could throw, they threw them at him repeatedly. They kept throwing stones, these rocks, at him hitting him enough to convince them that he was dead. And when they stopped because they thought he was dead, they could put down the rocks. They figured that he's just going to finish off. He'll, be, he'll bleed out. 
The animals will come and eat them. And so they walked away and they had dinner. But eventually the Apostle Paul woke up from uh, being unconscious, from taking too many rocks to the head. He brushed himself off. He found his friends. And then he went back to what he had been doing before. He did not go home and say, um, God, oh, I have done so much for you. I've done my part. Did you see what I just went through? It's now time to call on somebody else. He continued to plant local churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. He was fearless because he had learned that uncertainty was going to be a constant. But we do not have to give in to fear. We do not have to live fearfully. Our focus, um, our fear is focused on the one who came to die for us, who came to be raised again for us. He is the one who can do something about our, our eternal destiny, the destiny of our soul. The Apostle Paul made his way back to Jerusalem, and it's honestly one of the most emotional scenes that you'll see captured in the New Testament. You want to read it later, it's Acts chapter 21. He's with a group of people, and they're sitting around in a room, and they're looking at him, and they're begging him, please, Paul, don't, please don't go back to Jerusalem. If you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. There's, there's just no, and if you're arrested, well, who knows what will happen then? Everywhere you go, you, you get into trouble. That's just what happens. Don't go back to Jerusalem. It will go bad. And Paul says to them, you know, kind of essentially, the feeling is with a smile, he says, friends, this is what God has called me to do. I understand that I will probably never see your faces again. And you're exactly right. Going to Jerusalem is not a safe thing. But I'm going anyways. What kind of a man is that? What kind of courage is that? It's courage born of the understanding that we don't need to fear anyone who can only harm the body, but not the soul. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and he is arrested. And there he claims Roman citizenship, and so they don't know what to do with him, so they ship him off to Rome. Nero's Rome. And he spends a long time in prison, waiting for his sentence. And eventually he is executed by Rome. And during that time in prison, he writes some of the literature that becomes part of the New Testament. And now, there's no operational temple. There is no more Roman Empire. But the words and the letters of Paul, they've been translated into hundreds of languages all around the world. And every single weekend, every single day, Around the world, we experience the results of a man who understood there is no need to be fearful. There is no need to fear men. All they can do is touch my body. That's all they can do. They cannot, I cannot allow them to rule. I cannot allow that to reign. I cannot allow that to ruin my life. And as Protestants, we don't talk about Jesus' mother Mary all that much. But you do realize, as the mother of Jesus, that she too became a fugitive from the law. She too was hunted. And anyone who was a close associate or friend or relative of Jesus, they would have to flee for their lives. 
They spent the rest of their lives trying to not be arrested, trying to not be back, brought back into Jerusalem and being persecuted wherever they were along with the other Christians. We believe that she ended up with the Apostle John living in the city of Ephesus and for the rest of her life, she had the potential to live a fearful life. And there are pockets of literature about the early Christians that survived from the first century and the second century. And after Paul was executed and after Peter had been killed, after the Christians or while the Christians were still being persecuted by Rome and by Nero specifically, there was a doctor. And one of his responsibilities, or as they thought of it, one of his opportunities was to go out into the arena where the Christians had been mauled by animals or partially eaten by animals, and he would examine their bodies because they were able to touch and examine a body for medical purposes of a dying man. But Romans wouldn't allow anyone to touch a dead body except for burial. So one of his pieces of literature, one of the things that he wrote, has survived from antiquity. And here's what he said about Christians. This is a pagan Roman doctor called Claudius Gallinus. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Because they understood that uncertainty is for certain. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but somehow they learn to live without being overwhelmed by fear. And every time you pick up an English New Testament, every time you pick up your English Bible and you, and you look at it and you read that, you need to understand that that came because a man translated it. That man was William Tyndale. And William Tyndale was the first person to translate the original Hebrew, the original Greek into English. He completed that, the, the whole thing, William Tyndale. He was considered an outlaw by the religious community because he wasn't doing Christianity right. He decided that the people of England needed an English translation of the Bible so that they could read it. They could study it on their own. And he translated the entire Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, from Hebrew to English for the Old, from Greek to English for the New. And it served as the basis of what would, uh, what would eventually become the King James Bible that has made its way all around the world and is still in circulation today. Eventually, he was arrested for translating the Bible into English. He was arrested, he was publicly strangled, and then his body was burned. He understood the consequences for what he was trying to do, and he was fearless. Because somehow it dawned on him, I do not need to give in to fear. Two years after he was executed publicly, King Henry of England declared Tyndale's English Bible as the official Bible of England, which leads me now to three uncomfortable and perplexing questions. Three questions that I don't really have an answer for. I have a hunch, but the questions are so convicting that I'm just going to leave them with you, and you don't have to look anybody in the eye as you answer these. Is our version of Christianity worth all that? Is your version, is the way that you live out your Christian life, is it worth that? Is our version of, oh, Lord, help me find my car keys. I can't, oh, my goodness, I got answered prayer. I found my keys. 
don't know what your version of Christianity looks like. He said, I, I, I had a beautiful quiet time. I, I, I listened to a song that I really like. Um, I, I gathered together with others, uh, other Christians regularly, you know, as long as it's not inconvenient. I, I focused on Jesus and, and what he has done for me and it transforms me when I don't have to go to the table tennis tournaments. Is your version or the, or the way that you are going to live out your Christianity, is it worth all that it took to get to you through history? I know these things can feel heavy, okay? Uh, but, but I think they're a good wake-up call, especially at Easter. Number two, is your version of Christianity worth dying for? Let me give you a little good news, okay? Kind of heavy, good news. The likelihood, the probability of you dying because of your Christian faith is astronomically low, all right? The whole idea that any of us is actually going to shed blood for Christianity is almost uh, not even on the radar, all right? But is our version of Christianity worth dying for? Because in our world today, there are Christians too frequently dying for a version of Christianity, is that our version? Are we that serious? Are we adjusting our choices when it comes down to what you want and what your Savior wants? Last one. Is the way we live worth the price they paid? Peter and Paul, maybe even Jesus' mother, are they, are, they, are they looking at us and saying, you're afraid of what? You're, you're worried about what? If the Christians in Iraq today, or the Christians in China today, the Christians who are left in Syria today, or Nigeria today, or on the border cities of Kenya today, whatever, whatever Christians are left in Pakistan today, if they could look at us and they could look at our version of Christianity, what would they say? This is not to make us feel guilty, okay? This does not need to make you feel bad, but this is a call. This is an advanced notice that this is something that we might have to deal with to some degree in the future. And I think answering these questions sooner rather than later is a good idea. Better to decide now so that when the dark comes, you're not scrambling around trying to figure out what you believe and what you think. Let's opt for something better now. Let's live towards something better now. With that exciting introduction, I hope you come back for week two of Tough as Nails. Heavenly Father, thank you for the men and women who gather today in our world, the, the people that had to decide this morning, is it worth the risk to gather publicly in your name? And then they did it anyway. Father, give us a sense of what you want us to do and what we have heard. We heard this, what do I do now? And I pray that in the days and the years to come, that those of us who claim to be your followers would figure this out. And that we would live bold, loving, fearless lives. Not because somehow things became more certain and more safe, but because we have learned to say no to fear. We have learned to fear, to, to focus on, to put our trust in the one who controls it all. And we pray these things in the name of our brave Savior, Jesus. Amen.